From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? It's myself and Captain Giles Morgan. Uh, we've had political upheaval in Argentina, so obviously we do not have Grant Williams. Uh, he will be making sure that gentleman there who looks like Bernard Manning on acid uh, doesn't last very long. If you see something happen to this man, you know what has happened. Um, I'm delighted that this uh, is an episode of the Bucket List brought to you by uh, Infinity Sports Travel, who are a wonderful sponsor. I think these days, the more and more that sport is becoming, for me anyway, I wrote about that in my article last week, uh, much more of a social event, much more about people getting together, tribal. Um, I think what they are doing and facilitating that for that part of the audience, that part of the market is really interesting. It's a really interesting company. And of course, they've helped us bring you uh, the idea of the bucket list, which is our second episode today with a wonderful guest. Uh, and I'm going to ask the captain to introduce all of that in a second. Um, but, you know, um, thanks for joining us. We never take it for granted. We we're really, really grateful for your support. And at this point, I will bring in Mr. Morgan himself. Giles, how are you? Roger, I'm very well. I had a, a, a rare weekend of proper sport watching. Um, sort of got myself back from Australia, sorted out kids, and therefore was able to really sort of spend some proper uh, sofa miles watching sport. And uh, I enjoyed very much watching the um, the ATP, the tennis in Turin, which you'll have seen a lot of media coverage with and locally, and seeing how Djokovic still manages just at his great old age, just perhaps unquestionably now the greatest tennis player of all time, even if you're a Federer or Nadal person, what this guy has done over such a long period of time and to beat the local boy so comprehensively, despite that local, um, obviously, support that he had was just, I'm in awe of Djokovic. I've never, he's never been my number one, but he is the number one, I think. I think that's right. You know, um, we watched that, uh, Rafael and I, we watched that with a lot of interest and kudos to the ATP. Uh, always been giving tennis a hard time, but I thought their presentation uh, in Italy and Turin was really good. Um, I exchanged some views on that with Nick Bourne and, and I was very, very pleasantly surprised. Obviously, Sinner being there is very interesting. Uh, and in the, um, the, the knockout um, before the final, actually beat Djokovic. But Every single one of us, every single one of us knew that if they met again in the final, it probably wouldn't end the same. I, I think this this Serbian is truly extraordinary. It, it, physically, at this age, whatever he is now, he just looks like perfection physically. You know, uh, he, he turns himself out well. He's all his mood music, all his attitude is just so intimidating and. I, I think you're right, Giles. You know, I, I, I'm I'm with you. Not my favourite. Can't get warm about him, but 
goodness, the respect. You know, there's not there's not a lot you you you, you can't see about him. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, I think he looks in better shape. I mean, he was always a wonderful athlete, but watching him on Sunday um, in the final, his just physique is just. It's sort of perfection for tennis, and yeah. Yeah. and his mentality is so can do. I mean, I think one of the things about Federer, who had the grace and the balletic skills of the athlete that he was, but he always had that mental fragility that could creep up from time to time, and you knew that sometimes it was just going to go horribly wrong, and did from time to time. Nadal, I think, was more. I think the mindset was similar to Djokovic, but sometimes the body let him down because he was putting his body under such duress and such such strain and, and pressure. It doesn't seem to be the same with Djokovic. He seems to have the mental and the physical combination that, I mean, God knows how he'll, he'll carry on going for. I mean, maybe, maybe it does suddenly come to a grinding halt but my god he just looked impressive so and and I agree with you by the way you have been tough on tennis and I think right rightly so but I thought the presentation of the finals and the way that the the lighting was done it looked like a show it really looked like a show and clearly with Italian support for for Sinner um made it very compelling it was good telly I have to say it was good old-fashioned telly enjoyed that yeah I, I agree with that so kudos give to Caesar what is Caesar's both to the ATP, to Turin, to Sinner, and obviously to Norrie, who um, begrudgingly, we have to say, is just a phenomenon. Absolutely. And then the other thing that caught my eye, Rog, um, when I didn't realise that the uh, the ICC Cricket World Cup final being played in India, um, that the stadium they, they, they played in is the biggest stadium in the world. I think it's 135,000 people in Ahmedabad. And... Um, I mean, so many things to unpack out of that because the Australians um, were not favourite going into the match, but they've played some extraordinary matches recently. And Travis Head, in particular, scored a century yeah. that completely confounded the the bookies, certainly uh, legitimate or otherwise. Um, and to see, I mean, I felt for the Indian crowd because it was their home home final and so much expectation. But once again, that that. Um, interesting greek word hubris comes into play where and where sport can deliver hubris like nothing else other than maybe mr icarus all those years ago just amazing that the australians just thumped them and that crowd was sitting there in stony silence and you felt yeah, for them but, yeah. but at the same time go sport unscripted drama there's going to be yeah. and and in a two horse race Fabulous. No, but I think you've hit exactly on, on what I saw when I saw that stadium and I saw the result coming in and everything like that. Uh, and the cold shower effect of so many people. Uh, the, the only other time I've experienced it really up close was Italia 90 and uh, the semi-final. Um, Italia, um, Napoli, um, Argentina, um, which obviously was very bizarre because Maradona's town um, playing that game and then they lost Italy on penalties and it was just and you know what sometimes that's what sport is all about you know it's it's the pain of such a dramatic loss that keeps it honest for me you know um, and I do believe that because I've just been spending a lot of time in the last six months writing about sport from all different angles to try and get this book over the line and everything like that and you know, at the end of the day, 
It's about losers and fans of losers because even arithmetically, they massively outnumber the winners. So, you know, I just start getting around my head the idea that losing and losing in a big occasion the way India did is right, is what sport does. And it can't be ever taken into the Netflix Cup type idea of entertainment and think that that's going to compete. To to take Grant's point, it may get you some quick uh, clicks and wins and audience and all of that for a while. But the reality of sport is the pain that those Indian cricket fans felt. And um, as you say, go sport. That is why we are the special product. I think that's right, Roger. We saw it in the Rugby World Cup just a month or so ago. Everybody, you know, the dream the dream scenario would clearly have been the French being the hosts. They'd put out an amazing side, but they didn't. Uh, the Irish, probably everybody else, yeah. everybody else's second team in terms of phenomenal support, brilliant, brilliant attitude of the fans, but not to be and as much as we can moan that and people are probably still sulking and I understand why you can never have it any other way because the moment that if sport is not as unscripted drama sport ceases to be sport and and that is its magic ingredient and 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 so we've seen it now twice with two home fans bitterly disappointed it's been quite happy i'm quite happy i'm neutral so i didn't feel it personally but oh. very aware of it but it's it's also given me great comfort to, to see 135,000 baying fans in a in a coliseum it's still there. It, people are still there for those big events and and what we would call and, and fittingly for this show bucket list events Yes, indeed. And, and you know, that, that brings us on beautifully to our guest, Giles. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who we've got today to talk about bucket lists and travelling for sport and um, give us a little bit of background to the wonderful person that joins us today. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to uh, in, uh, that we've invited Matt Tate, um, who... For those who remember their rugby, um, is a stalwart. I think he played 279 club games for his clubs in Sale and Leicester and the Newcastle Falcons. But he also played uh, for five years for the England rugby team. He uh, represented his country in the World Cup final in 2007 against South Africa. England were unsuccessful in that bid. Uh, seems to be quite a, a uh, that seems to be a, a story on repeat. Um, but he was also, I think, one of the. I think I'm right. He was one of the very earliest capped players. He was only 18 when he got selected for his country. So, yes, um, a, yeah. a wonderful product of, of Newcastle University, my my alma mater, and someone who gave his all to a sport as a, as a young professional, and then when he hung up his boots in 2018, very much wanted to focus in in sport as his business, as, as his professional career, which is why he, I think, is such an interesting guest for us. Yes, he has the chops and the kudos as a former athlete, but he's spent the last five or six years, he he worked for Oakwell Sports Advisory, who we both know, learning his his trade, his craft in terms of corporate advisory work to understand the commercial structure of sport. And he worked for Andrew Umbers and did a, a you know, he was a wonderful um, ambassador for that great company. And then I think a year ago, he was plucked out of really probably, from him, it was probably came out of nowhere to work for Emirates, who owned the uh, Dubai Sevens um, rugby tournament, which I know a fair amount about, to be their general manager. And 
talk about great timing of someone who understands the commercial structures of sport, understands his sport, but also I suspect understands how Sevens, on one hand in Dubai, is the beating heart of the Middle East as, as the Dubai Sevens absolutely is. But within the context of World Sevens, which has never really lit the touch paper of of, of the sport, even though it's in the Olympic Games. So a wonderful opportunity for, for Matt that I'm dying to hear how he's going a year in, but also a, a wonderful segue for us to talk about what is a bucket list event? Why do they get to be called that? Why do people put them on their bucket list? But also for me, there are events that maybe historically have been bucket list events. And I'm thinking, again, this may be shot down in flames, but hey, that's the point of the podcast, that for me growing up, the FA Cup final would have been the ultimate bucket list event. I'm now not convinced it necessarily is with with football fans. So how do you lose that mantle? And how do you retain it? How do you keep the the excitement going? And and that's the point of this series as we look to people coming in from all sorts of different sports where uh, bucket list events are. But I think Matt will be a a great second guest for this series. I'm delighted, uh, as you said, Infinity Sports Travel has sponsored this show because they deliver people to bucket lists. But interestingly, I suspect after the Rugby World Cup, up in France. I think they sold out every single boat uh, they did. I think there were two or three thousand people on every That's on great. every on every boat. I suspect the guys who uh, run the company are still recovering from light alcohol poisoning and exhaustion. But um, I wish them well, and we look forward to to working with them in the future. But anyway, let's bring Matt onto the show. Matt, a very, very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained? I'm delighted to have you on the show. We've wanted you on for a little while and I'm particularly grateful. I think it's only about 10 days or so or a week or so until the Dubai Sevens, which means I imagine you're absolutely manic trying to get the event absolutely à point, as they say in France. So thank you for for joining us. No worries. Absolute pleasure. Um, before we get going, and, and there's so many things I want to talk to you about, particularly in the sort of the, this whole idea of a bucket list event and having been to the Dubai Sevens about 10 times, it's right up there. Even though it's I've been there, I keep wanting it to be on my bucket list. It's so much fun and such a brilliant event. But before we do that, let's just talk about another bucket list event that many people um will have enjoyed over the last six to eight weeks, which has been the Rugby World Cup, um, brilliantly held by the French, despite the British media trying to grumble about queue sizes, which I didn't see at all. But that's the British media. Let's find a story. As a former England rugby player and as someone who who loves the game as as you do, what, what were your what was your perspective living as you do in Dubai? I know you went to a couple of the games, but how was it as a, as a barometer for the game of rugby globally? How, how was the, the 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 French edition of the twenty three World Cup? No, I think the you know I was very fortunate. I got out for the third and fourth playoff and and for the final, so towards the the business end. But from my point of view, I really. I enjoyed the event. As you touched on, Giles, the French know how to do an event properly. Um, there was a few a few snags at the start. I think in terms of a, a spectacle and a showcase for rugby, I think probably the quarterfinals were, the, were possibly the pinnacle um, of the tournament with some fantastic games across that, which probably comes to the point around the, the timing of the draw being when it was so far out from the event. And I'm sure that's something that, that World Rugby will look at. Um, I think in terms of the, this kind of balance and the use of the, the video referees as well, um, 
there are still some issues in and around that. There's this sort of age-old problem that rugby has now as it looks to make itself safer, um, this kind of the pro product versus protection of players and the kind of sanitization of the, the product and how best to go about that. And I still, candidly, I still don't quite think that they've got that right. There's some of the inconsistencies that I know were frustrations to, to some of the players. So for, the, for those watching, I, I, I empathise with that. I still think the challenge with, with rugby as a, as a game, and I say this as someone that spent so long playing it, um, it's inherently quite complicated. Um, and in this kind of evolution of the game to try and make it safer, at times it feels like it's becoming overcomplicated for overcomplicated sake, which when you were trying to attract new audiences um, can become pretty, pretty difficult, um, would be my, my assessment. Do you think it's a? Do you think that fans? Do you get the sense that fans are uh, getting frustrated by that complexity because, that, as you say, they're hell bent on making the game safer because it has to be, but at the same time leaving fans somewhat somewhat behind. Is that something that people talk to you about? Yeah, I think I think in the core markets and with rugby fans, they get it because they they're kind of bought into the sport already. The challenge comes when you're trying to attract new fans from new countries is just there's so many nuances to the game and this is like I'm talking as a as an ex-player here sometimes I I get confused by, by by what's going on and can't quite decipher what's going on so you know when you're trying to attract new new fans to to the to the sport sometimes the on-field product can can be difficult to to decipher I think World Rugby did actually a very good job and I know there was some people have probably different opinions to this. I thought the, the, the entertainment in and around the actual on-field, particularly at the Stade de France where I was, I, I enjoyed it. The music and, and everything else, that kind of the peripheral piece, the more Americanization of the, the product, I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, but again, your traditional fans might not enjoy that, but it's, it, again, it's this it's battle between the, the traditional and the diehards. And France is a diehard market. Right in terms of the rugby piece and were rug world rugby always going to smash it out of the park with a World Cup in France? I think they probably were. I think the challenge comes moving forward in 2027 when you move to Australia. Yes, it's always been a, a relatively successful team, but actually in terms of a market for rugby union, it's a relatively peripheral sport. Notwithstanding the Aussies know how to deliver an event, but I think it's going to be a, a challenge and just the general state of rugby union in Australia you know, Eddie Jones has gone, I see Hamish McLennan's gone. So the game itself in Australia has got a, a lot to do and they're taking the, the pinnacle event and the event that underpins the kind of the finances of the, the global governing body to, to, to Australia in 2027. So I think, uh, I think it's in an interesting spot. Mark, let me, let me ask you about that, that phrase you could use there that, that finances the, the game. Um, I think for most non-rugby people, certainly the non-super core fan, um, there's been a lot of perplexity about how this tournament went on for two months. And, you know, for at least half of that, I think there wasn't an awful lot of what's called jeopardy these days. The, it, was, it was struggling to get to, you know, as you say, it's pinnacle in the quarterfinals. Um, you're now involved very much in, in, in getting, you know, the, the appeal and the product market fit of, of an event, a rugby event. You know, what is the other side of the argument that says that two months was the right way to structure this tournament? I guess the, I mean, the opposite argument would be the growth of the game and giving the opportunities to those more peripheral, tier two fringe nations to to have a shot. Um, is that, again, you know, we're talking about product, does it 
to your point, Roger, dilute the product and we move forward to 2027, they're actually talking about, well, we're talking about an increase in the number of teams from 20 to 24. So it's this, you know, yes, it's giving more opportunities to some of these these fringe countries, but then are they correctly prepared as they move into these bigger competitions to play against the likes of the New Zealands, the Englands, the Frances, the Islands, the, the kind of the, the tier one nations um, and under the new calendar that World Rugby have recently announced um, what the appropriate name is I think it's the global competition effective this nation nations championship the the narrative coming out that is going to provide more opportunities but actually there's the potential that you know it doesn't kick in until 2020 six uh, the competition itself and there's no relegation and promotion between the two tiers until until 2030 so actually are are there still going to be limited opportunities for these tier two nations to play more regularly against the the better tier one nations then leading into these world cups are they going to be appropriately prepared that that, that becomes the challenge you know Matt, I, I don't want to you know, seem as if it's a rugby thing here because everything i'm saying applies also to football you know, um, the, the, the team of the more teams participating in a World Cup, a World Cup demanding a bigger part of the calendar that leads into club versus country issues, that leads into injuries. Uh, it's very common also in football. We've just had the international weekends. A lot of players have been lost to their clubs, like uh, Gavi of Barcelona. You know, so... Um, I want to ask you, and this is my own view about rugby, about football, that anything, I believe less is more. I believe um, our product in sport is oversaturated. I'm not talking about yours, because yours is the complete opposite, short and sharp bang. Um, but you know what I'm saying here? I'm, we seem to be addressing the issue of a fuzzy product market fit by trying to throw more games at things. Whereas maybe the absolute answer it's to strip it right back and rugby's maybe got eight teams, maybe a couple of wild cards. Uh, a soccer World Cup has got um, 12 teams, maybe four world wide wild cards. You know, that kind of thinking, is that ever anything that you've heard discussed with any kind of like credibility in the sport? It, it's not, and I, I, candidly, I'm not necessarily privy to those conversations, but I, I definitely think there is some merit in looking at that yeah, quality over t- over quantity piece. And actually, probably in the club game, you know, we're seeing that potentially play out with the demise of certain clubs, um, the game trying to support too big a player pool, too many too many clubs, kind of a bit, well, a bit Darwinian, but with three clubs going under last year, which is obviously very sad that people lose their, lose their jobs, but it's a, it shows that, you know, the game is potentially, at the club level at least, over, overstretched itself. I think that's really important because you know the record will show I've always been um, a big fan of the idea of rugby as uh, a sport and its product even though it's not my sport I recognize it's got massive um, advantages over others in terms of what it represents its ethos the way it carries itself everything like that but I look around and it clearly hasn't found a model either at the club game either in the hemisphere north and south balance um, the calendar uh, and, and everything we're talking about here, you know, tragically with a lot of historic names gone. Um, 
What is the reason for that? What is the reason for that? Is it simply, is it simply that players ended up getting paid too much because for a period of time there was benefactors that just said, I'll pick up the tab? Is it because they never faced into what the business with revenues and costs always should have been? Is it as simple as that? I definitely think there's an element of that. And if we look potentially, you know, this COVID has a part to play, but there's a there's a big piece that precedes that. And, and a big piece is around, yeah, the, the benefactors. And for me, there was a... There was a cap, there was a salary cap there that was meant to yeah, control costs and maintain a level playing field. And, you know, whether everyone stuck to that can be argued or not. I think one of the, the biggest issues, and I, I forget the date at which it was introduced, was the, the marquee player. Um, so yes. I guess this, this ability for, you know, chairman to, to go, I'm going to sign a cheque because I want to sign, I don't know, Dan Carter, for example. Um, and, and to a certain extent, players and agents accepted that, I think, because it was recognition that these players are additive to the team performance, they're additive to the overall appeal of the league. But then the introduction of the second marquee player, all of a sudden you then have agents and players going, well, well, if he's worth 500000 as a second marquee, well, I'm only getting paid half of that. Well, actually, I, yeah. my market value yeah. is 300000 350000 And all of a sudden you kind of multiply out, that out across a squad of... 40 first, eight, um, first team players, then all of a sudden you've got a, you've got a significant issue on your hand. And that certainly didn't help. Crowds, I think, um, have been relatively stable. Broadcast revenues have been relatively stable without necessarily going up. And then obviously the CVC bought into to PRL as it Premiership Rugby just pre-COVID. Um, talk about kind of the, the perfect storm and there's the, the distributions for allowing CVC to buy into those future revenue, revenue streams where we're supposed to grow the businesses um, of the clubs. But actually, I think all that happened was it ended up supporting those clubs through cash flow issues during COVID and they come out the other side and actually <laughs> there isn't the money to necessarily invest in the business. We're in a kind of a, more of a macroeconomic climate now where you know, people having to watch the pennies, particularly back in the UK as well. Um, and there's a bit of a, I think, just a bit of a perfect, perfect storm that's been created. Matt, if you um, if you could um, look back on not just your own career, but there was obviously the amateur era. There was the quasi amateur era that, that the French and the Welsh particularly loved, which was we're amateur, but we'll make sure that people get paid. Then the game went into a professional era, and it was total chaos and we went into this era as as you said this era of the benefactor if you could have picked any time to play rugby you did something that i i am absolutely in awe of you played for your country in a sport that i love something that was never going to happen if you could choose any era to have played rugby in when would it have been to, to be honest, probably the era I did, because um, I, I retired. I retired in 2019, just before uh, there was all the the, the wage cuts. I mean, I, yeah, you know, I, I played through what was a, a growth and a boom period for this for the sport, really, in terms of the certainly in terms of the salaries available to players. And we're not talking football wages, but we're talking, a, you know, to be able to support sustain a nice a nice standard of standard of living. Uh, I started playing. in... 2004, my first game for Newcastle Falcons. And how old were you then? You were very, very young on that. I was was 18, yeah, I was in the middle of my A-levels, so I took a bit of time out of revision (laughs) revision to go and play for for them, played through 2004, Um, and then I went straight from school into into professional sport, I remember at the time, 
thinking I was flush flush with cash on my, I think it was £8,000 a year or something I was earning at uh, Newcastle having gone straight from school. So, But in, in terms of the... Yeah, I, I do genuinely think the era in which I've I, I've come through, it was it was probably a little bit wild west on the on the injury and the head injury side of things, um, which is something that now is, and some of that's driven by players as well, I think. And there's definitely been a change in the psyche of players. At the time, it was probably seen as a bit more of a badge of honour that you could carry on with with knocks, and and that's both. You know, physical and, to, and to, to the head as well and not wanting to let your teammates down but actually there's been a and rightly so a change in both players looking after themselves but also there's there's so much more protection to players head injury assessments independent doctors present at, um, at every matches to kind of mitigate as much as it is humanly possible with what is a physical support and to, you know it comes back to my point I made at the start that it's this this fight between protection of the players sanitization of the product and part of that is understanding that part of the reason people want to watch rugby is the the combat and the physical nature of it um it's that kind of gladiatorial element of the sport that people the confrontational part of the sport that people in enjoy watching that makes it interesting well let me um let me shift a bit because we're here partly to talk about you. We're partly here to talk about bucket list events of which I have always maintained that the Dubai Sevens, if you live in the Middle East in particular, uh, particularly as an expat, this is the must-go event. It really is brilliant, very much similar to how, if you live in the Far East, how the Hong Kong Sevens, two extraordinary city-state events that certainly transcend the sport of, of Rugby Sevens. They are much bigger than the collective of the series. Um, and something that I think I think I'm right in saying Dubai Seven started in 1970. It's even older than the UAE, which is uh, astonishing. The formation of the UAE, but I but I would also say as someone who way back when in 2009 was played quite a quite an influential role. I pompously like to think with both rugby and golf becoming part of the Olympic movement, and I think. It would be fair, if not necessarily universally loved by people at World Rugby, that as much as it's exciting that uh, Rugby Sevens has come to the Olympic Games and there have been some nice iterations of it, the touch paper of the sport has not gone global. And that Rugby Sevens, despite it being an easier format, men and women play, it's fast and furious, it doesn't require the technical know-how of referee judgment, etc. That This is a product that still has not um, uniformly taken over. And yet... And yet, that in Hong Kong and the Dubai Sevens, the Emirates Dubai Sevens that you look after, these are absolutely adopted by communities. These are must-attend social events. These are events that people pay a lot of money to come and watch and to, to have a brilliant time. So it feels almost like the tail um, wags the dog in, in Rugby Sevens. And I, I, I wondered, after a year in, in post, in, in there you are in, in Dubai, What's your perception of where Sevens is? And then talk a little bit about the nature of why it has become so beloved in the region and what you're going to do to keep taking it forward and to keep maintaining the the pressure that every event has, which is there's always another event around the corner. Yeah. And I miss, you know, the, the format of Sevens for me is, I, I just love it. And it's got, you know, when I, when I, my playing days, um, 
allowed me to almost jump, get back on the horse after an infamous debut in 2005. It provided me with a bit of an opportunity to to just, fall, uh, sounds a bit dramatic, but fall back in love with the, the game a little bit again. I was very fortunate that Newcastle saw the value in allowing me at the time to go and play on the on the World Series um, across the 2005-2006 event. And I played in Dubai and it was George as it was at the time, now down into to Cape Town and then the Commonwealth Games in, in Melbourne through to Hong Kong, Singapore with a, a training camp in uh, in Bali for a week, which was, which was really nice. But it's, it, you know... It, Essentially, the game of sevens is is the stripped back format of rugby, and the reason I loved playing the game, which was to be able to put your skills, core skills, under pressure and to take people on one on one, and that's, I guess, part of the mystery as to potentially why it hasn't kicked off as, as potentially as much as it should, because it it removes a lot of barriers to participation in the sense you don't need as many players. Um, it, it's actually. You, <laughs> It's, it's more around the athleticism and the skill rather than necessarily understanding a lot of the tactical nuances. Obviously, obviously there is going to be some, some tactical nuances and the coaches, I'm sure, involved in the series will kill me for that. But it's not, it's not like 15s where you've got the, the nuances of an eight-man scrum, the rock and malls, the line-outs, all the rest of it that actually end up slowing the game down. So it's this kind of, it's a format that is dear, dear to my heart and... I was obviously very, very pleased to, to, to get the, the job out here. In terms of this, the Dubai Sevens event, you know, it's the, as you rightly point out, Giles, it's 53 years now that the, the event has, has been here and evolved from an event in the, in the sandpit of the Exiles, Exiles Rugby Club to this massive multi, multi-purpose facility built by Emirates in, in, in 2008. And it's, there's quite this nice parallels of the growth and the evolution of Dubai under the vision of... Sheikh Mohammed to, to the Sevens as well. It's these two kind of have run in parallel the evolution from something built from built from the desert um, under the under the vision of of him. And I'm you know very fortunate to to be able to. And why? Um, let's 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 pick at that. So obviously Dubai has grown as a culture, as a city. It's become an international trade hub. All of the things that we know. Do you think that therefore the Sevens has just grown to be a mirror of that, a kind of receptacle which says, right, well, you're here for business and here's an event and it's getting bigger and there's, you know, there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a free-flowing uh, food and drink. It's all going to be great fun. Do you think it's just been a mirror, a societal mirror? And is that actually what all bucket list events are? You know, the original Open Championship, I don't suppose, had 150,000 people at St Andrews. I suspect eight people and a sheep watched the the original versions and it grew as the game grew. Do you think that a lot of what bucket list events become is just um, the sort of repetition over time in history of, of calendar events that just take people along and grow imperceptibly year after year? I think there's definitely a, an advantage in, uh, to having that kind of fixed position in a calendar um, and it just knowing that it's repeating year on year on year. And for Dubai in particular, it's around the National Day weekend, which is always towards the end of November, December. So everyone, whether new to Dubai or been here for a long time, knows that the Emirates Dubai Sevens is on during the National Day weekend. I think that... With all of the the bucket list events, there's all, I think there's always going to there's an element element of kind of history, tradition, and heritage, but underpinned by a kind of an evolution to maintain that relevance. I think if they don't, these events don't continue to evolve and iterate themselves based on 
changing demographics of cities or the regions that they're trying to attract and the age demographics they're trying to attract, then they can see themselves fall away. And that, you know, is part of the reason around the evolution of the the Emirates Dubai Sevens as it is now. It was the Dubai Rugby Sevens, but that was a deliberate dropping of rugby from the name uh, by one of my, my predecessors was actually to say that, you know, we'll always celebrate the fact that rugby is the foundations upon which the, the event is built. And actually there's still a huge part of our audience want that. But the demographics of, and the expectations of Dubai as a sporting community, but also to attract people down to the event that might not necessarily be interested in in sport, but we can get them down because we've got, you know, we've got fantastic F&B, we've got fantastic music, fantastic entertainment on that sits around the peripheral. And actually it's just a case of, wanting to bring people together for that that collective experience and that shared experience. And that can be as a an old ex-Duffer player like me that's coming out to play with his mates to catch up in the Invitational Rugby Tournament. Or it could be a, you know, a family that are coming down to have their first experience of playing paddle as it was this year. Um, and that's the reason we've added, you know, in and around the World Series, we've got five invitational sports now. So we have our, there's our rugby with 180 plus invitational teams flying in from all over the globe, kind of this annual pilgrimage that a lot of them make because they know it's in their calendar at a fixed point into Dubai in the center of the planet to have this amazing experience. We've got netball, which has grown, growing year on year, 85 plus teams this year, teams flying in from America to take part. Cricket, introduced three years ago to tap into this big Southeast Asian, Indian, Pakistani population that call, call Dubai home. And then CrossFit, uh, our Wadon competition, which is essentially a functional fitness competition last year. And we've introduced Paddle this year, um, or Padel, I think, as you call it on your, uh, on your, on your podcast. So, um, yeah, we've introduced that. Matt, Matt, let me let me let me ask something about all of this because um, I was in a meeting the other day and somebody said something very interesting. They said, "You know, all this talk about Saudi and sport now." They said Dubai is still where it's at when you cut everything back. What is? Give us an insight into however you want to describe the rivalry between Qatar the Saudi cities in the Yom Kadiya that are coming up and, and the, the granddaddy, which is obviously Dubai. Uh, how, you've been there not a long time now, but enough. How do you feel that Dubai is living this latest iteration of what seems Saudi-dominated sport? I think actually the, the ties between Saudi and Dubai are strong, and I think the, there's, a, there's enough sport assets globally that there's enough for everyone to kind of feed, feed at, the, at that table. Um, the reality is, you know, Saudi's investing what it's investing to, I guess, in a way, replicate what Dubai did <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yes. a, a little while ago. And um, there's close collaboration cities uh, between the countries, sorry, from a, from a, from a trade perspective. Um, and from, from my point of view and what I'm seeing is actually it's it's almost complementary because all it does is reinforce the Middle East as this 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 global hub for sport. Um, obviously, a lot of attention is around that in the in Dubai, but Emirates I think still remains the biggest sponsor of of sport globally and was the the, the first mover to see the the value of owning a number of key sports sponsorship 
assets. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't see it necessarily as competing. Um, I think it's complementary, and I think it it adds it ad, it adds to showcasing the ability of the entire region, not just Dubai, UAE, you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and in, in that as well, Qatar, and obviously Saudi Arabia. I think it just reinforces that this is a place to to come um, if you are a, a sports entity. Yeah. Before we get into specific lists that we've all got, I saw a story today, and again, I repeat, I'm not a rumpy, rumpy guy, but this strikes me, and I've got good antenna for this, this strikes me as one hell of a story. Um, the name I'm going to mention to you is Antoine Dupont. Now, if I'm correct, you, you laugh, uh, if I'm correct, this is a chap, a serious rugby player who's going to relinquish playing in the uh, Six Nations to allow him to get ready for the Olympics where, if I'm not wrong, he will be playing sevens. Now, if that's correct, and I'm reading that correctly, that kind of like encapsulates all the things we, we, we talked about in the first half of this podcast about the, the, the challenges of the sport and getting itself together and finding space and priorities and who gets what and who gets paid for what. Is this not one hell of a big story that's going to be a cold shower that a lot of people might? Yeah, I think it is. I've not seen it announced that that's definitely happening as yet, but it's been it's been rumoured for for a period of time. I think it it probably showcases the strength of the Olympics and the Olympic appeal and and the ability for the sevens to be part of the Olympics. Dupont's won a Six Nations. He's won a top fourteen with Toulouse. He obviously hasn't won a won a World Cup because they got knocked out um, during the World Cup. So for him, it's it's around being able to, you know, when you look back at a career. Olympics is one thing that not many people that potentially have on their on a medal around around their neck, and if he sees an opportunity to do that, I think it's probably yeah, it's it's, it's a great opportunity for him. It's a great opportunity for the sport of sport of sevens to be able to to leverage his profile. I know Michael Hooper is the same recently, so the ex um, Australia captain, he's going to be playing for for the Australian uh, sevens team. I don't think that's going to be till till, till later in the year. So there. I think the transition of some of these players over is is primarily driven by by the Olympics, but it's a great opportunity for the, to the for the sport to to leverage them them coming coming in. I think the challenge that sevens has now because it's so specialised is for those some of those star players to kind of dip in and out for the odd event. So when I was on the the, the series, it was seen primarily as a as a development tool. Um, almost like a, a bit of a finishing finishing school for certain types of players, and as the game became more specialised, the transition across and the value was questioned by a number of the unions. There are still some unions that do it, South Africa and the likes of Cheslin Colby and some of those guys that have successfully made the transition. But they've done it having been on the series for an extended period of time, so they can but get. Mark, can I ask you? Can I ask you because I can only reference to what would happen in football. In football, a player hasn't got the choice whether to turn up for his national team or not. They get called, and if they don't, all hell breaks loose. Can't play for their club and everything. Like, what happens in rugby? Can he just willy-nilly say, I'm not running up for the Six Nations and nothing happens? I think it, it depends on the unions because there's various different models that exist across the, the different unions. So it would be more challenging within the PRL because it's ultimately the, the, the clubs are the ultimate paymasters, but they do obviously get a, a pay payment from the RFU through the professional game agreement. In, in France... <laughs> I suspect he's probably got enough wa- waster because um, it is actually the clubs that 
there's a closer relationship, um, but it is actually the clubs that are the main paymaster. But I think possibly DuPont's got enough yeah, to coin a, a UAE term, the waster, to be able to say that I want to I want to be able to to do this. And um, but Matt, let me ask you. To, I mean, as a, as a rugby as a rugby player, someone who's played not both well both formats of the game very very successfully. Um, but sevens has moved on. It's very specialised, as you referenced earlier. I remember taking Daly Thompson to watch the England set up in 2016. And he said, I can't believe it. I've just seen a squad of 10, seven, uh, the, the 10 sevens players he was watching um, for, for England were effectively 10 decathletes. He was blown away by the athleticism. Is there is there a, a, a potential that Dupont, as brilliant a 15-a-side player as he undoubtedly is, is there a chance that he won't be good enough to play sevens because he's not specialised? Uh, I don't doubt from a skill set wise he'll be good enough. He's one of the best players from a skill set pers- perspective in the world. I think it just it's it's the conditioning is so different, and it'll be this is why he'll be coming in relatively soon to be able to go on a specialised program to get him sevens fit i remember coming i dropped in 2004 end of 2004 having just been a training for 15s to then play sevens in the december that year and i'm coughing up my lungs at some point on the exiles uh, exiles ground after about two minutes just because it is so different so it is going to take him a, a period of time and there's many many a 15s player has tried to make the the transition across for some of these major events the likes of Matt Gitto, Chris Latham in 2006 at the Com Games, Quade Cooper um, tried and, and played a little bit on the seven circuit, but again, dropping in and out. So if, uh, I think the the fact that Dupont is coming in much earlier into the season to allow him to get specifically fit is, I, mean, is, is, I guess, testament to him that he's he's willing to make that call from a from a career perspective because he thinks he can he thinks he can cut the mustard. And Matt, let me just before we get on to your own um, bucket list, because I'm always fascinated. It's a, the ultimate pub conversation. But before then, we sit with the new series. You're about to launch the new series. Dubai is the first of the the new um, HSBC. I've still got it. I still know. Remember the title sponsor, World Rugby Sevens <laughs> um, sponsor. Yeah. And it's a seven. It's a seven tournaments, men and women, grand final in Madrid, which has raised a few eyebrows, but great city to go to. You obviously kick things off and will kick it off as you do every year, spectacularly well. And then I think it's Cape Town next, if I'm right. And yeah, that's correct, always yeah. obviously fantastic stadium down there in Greenpoint and the South Africans love their rugby and that will be great. And then there's been a little bit of a sort of fizz and who gives a damn about some of the tournaments until Uncle Hong Kong comes back and picks up the mantle again and, and, and shakes it again. I'm sounding cynical. I'm not. I just know sevens as well as I know anything. Are you excited? And I don't mean you to toe the party line. What can World Rugby learn from Dubai to help them with their cherished series to become the sport that we all know it should be? Well, I think, yeah, looking at how World Rugby has revamped the the new format of the series, it's a compliment to both ourselves and, and Hong Kong that... How, how they've done that. The challenge with sevens is, you know, with, and with all sport, it's where does it generate its money to sustain itself? Sevens isn't a broadcast product, and there's been this realisation by World Rugby that they need to, to do more in and around celebrating and showcasing the event, and that's kind of where, where that's going to focus is in and around the sport, music, 
an entertainment, food, and then the mass participation piece. So um, I'm really I'm really looking forward to to seeing how that is replicated across all the other events. Um, I think the, the the jeopardy in Madrid I think is an interesting an interesting change in that there's the the ability for those challenger nations to be promoted to the World Series. And when you were talking about you know growth of the game and accessibility, it gives that immediate accessibility to some of potentially these more peripheral nations where their primary touch point with with the sport of rugby is is through through sevens and the funding that's available through the the fact that it's a, it's an Olympic sport. So I'm excited to see to see what that looks like. Um, and you know, from from our perspective, this has been my my second second uh, event under under my guys. You've got some but, good bands yeah. coming. Good good bands, DJs coming. Or have you announced those? Or are you holding fire? Is there no, a no, big one? So I think you'll be you'll be a big fan of Becky Hill and MK Giles. I know they're, they're right Absolutely. on your street. Absolutely, always um, every day on my playlist. Every day. <laughs> and then we've got Awful, Awful Dodger and DJ Lock and MC Neat. So that's uh, they're probably more of. <laughs> more for people of a certain heritage I think is very nice. oh, yeah. so very no, yeah, look, looking, looking, for, looking forward to, to, to kind of kicking it all off and as always actually it's the it gets really exciting at the end of this week as the World Series teams start to fly in and we have the, our invitational invitational teams start to come into into buy and into market and it becomes very very real and tangible at that point Okay Matt let's, um, let's spend the last 5-10 minutes talking a little bit about bucket lists and kind of things that you still want to, you said you talked about the Formula One a little bit, um, and that is very interesting because I know we just said Las Vegas, and it goes back to a lot of the points you were talking about, about making an event and, you know, the traditionalists not liking the track and uh, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you're uniquely placed here as an ex-pro athlete. Where are the ones that you really think you would still like to go to um, in the next few years, before they all ultimately change into some version of metaverse and the colonial type broadcasting, old school. Where are the bucket bucket list events for you? I think they're still the big traditional ones for me. So I'm I'm a big fan of American sport. So I, the NBA, I'd love to go to some the NBA finals, Super Bowl, which I know is also on your bucket list as well, Giles. Um, and as we were touching on just before, I think before we came online is I'm very lucky that I'm going to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix this this weekend um on Sunday been as, as a guest so I get to do the the full pit walk the full shebang which is um there's always been on Perfect. my on my on my my bucket list because I think F1 does it does it right notwithstanding Max Verstappen's comments about uh about Vegas yeah. over, over the over the weekend yeah. um I guess it's Potentially more in reference to the traditionalist. I'm not necessarily a traditional F1 fan. I was. I used to used to watch it fleetingly. Was sucked in by Drive to Survive, um, and now there you go. I, Isn't that yeah, interesting? Have the have the bug to to just get more into the the weeds and the behind the behind the scenes piece, which is actually something we're copying this year for the for the Amsterdam by Sevens. We're doing a bit of a behind the scenes documentary just to showcase and educate people about everything else that goes on in and around the event apart from the rugby x-rated i guess heavily edited no thinking, comment no thinking comment. aftershave and things like that <laughs> you Best call that out all you've got left is about three minutes of <laughs> <laughs> no comment no comment roger yeah I, I, i'm interested what you said earlier matt about um about bucket lists though and how there is this clever 
a sensitive balance between the, the heritage and history, which provides the kind of narrative of, of the past, but also the need for events to make sure that they keep contemporizing, can, can not be arrogant enough to think that everything is fine because it was fine last year and therefore the same old people will come. You'll know as a listener of the podcast, Roger is always talking about young people, consumption. How do you bring them in? What is the way to do it? Whether it be music, whether it be looking at formats, whether it be looking about ticketing policy for live events, whatever it is, to stand still is dangerous. And I imagine when you took the job, that must have been the thing that probably the excitement of working for a great sporting event with everything it came with. But the pressure for you and for your team is to make sure that you're always one step ahead of of the others. Yeah, no, exactly that. And that was yeah, a big opportunity that, it, that did excite me. Um, I think the really interesting piece about Dubai is and you sort of, you've touched on it, is just how competitive a market is. There's literally, we open up for peak season, there is a music festival or music event or sporting event either in Dubai or Abu Dhabi every weekend. So for us to, to sort of sit on our laurels and because it worked last year, it'll work again this year was just not the case. And that was started by my, my, my predecessor and it's something I'm very much taking forward. And that's the reason we've introduced additional additional sports. And it's it's... It is engaging that age demographic. The, the, the Dubai demographic is very skewed, this 18 to 45-ish. Um, and it's, how, it's engaging with, with that audience. And what do they want? Well, it is, it's, it's, it's experiences. And that can be both as a social at the bar, having food, or it can actually be participating in a, in a sport as part of something that's much bigger than that. And that also resonates with a lot of what Dubai is doing as part of the 2040 vision, which is celebrating health and wellness and about being the fittest city. We're just coming, you know, to the end of the Dubai 30 and 30. There's a real focus in this in the city around the health and the health of its inhabitants. So for us, it's around how we connect with that audience. And it, it is the sports, but it's also there's the, there's the entertainment piece and it is the platforms with which we engage. So we do a lot more now than we... Than, than we historically did on it's the, the social platforms, it's the Instagrams, it's the it's, it's the TikToks, and it's tailoring content to be relevant to to those audiences. I'm very lucky. I've got in-house team that that does that. I was going to say, own. do you have a do you have a very good social media team to help you with your TikTok account? Yeah, we yeah we do. It's definitely not my forte. <laughs> I won't be on there singing or dancing. I can assure you. But yeah, I'm very lucky that I've got got a good team that are doing that. We have our own first party database through our own ticketing platform we have for the event so we we have a you know there's a foundations there for us to kind of commercialize and leverage more what we're doing well and i think i'm aware a little bit of what you're doing and i think so much of how dubai has always approached sport as an innovator as a disruptor um, and even if you're 53 years young this year i, I fully expect and and hope to see the dubai sevens as as a preeminent event within the social calendar and i think on behalf of me and roger in particular with obviously having this chat with you 
genuinely wish you all the very best of luck in the next next week or so. It's a huge event. And for any anyone who is still wondering what to do with their air miles and if you can get a ticket from Emirates Airline to come down, go, go, go. It is so much fun. Um, and Matt, um, best of luck with that. And also a huge thank you for, for coming on the show, as I say, with these rather tight uh, timelines you're under and sharing your own perspective. We really, yes. really appreciate it. No, absolute pleasure. And if either your, Thanks, either your di- diaries free up, you're more than welcome to come and join us in Dubai. I, I, I will take you, maybe not this year, but I will definitely take you up on that. Definitely. Well, maybe sure. we could do a live show, uh, Matt, from uh, from Dubai in 2025. Roger, Roger, Roger doesn't drink much, so he'd be fine. He he, he runs a very short bar tab. I, on the other hand, am absolute absolute <laughs> terror. <laughs> That's fine. Short pockets is what I hear about you, though. No long pockets, short shoulders. And, and fair point, <laughs> Matt. Thank you very much. Lovely to see thanks, you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for your Take, time. I know it's, yeah. it's a busy time. Thank you. Take care. Cheers, guys. Really enjoyed that, Giles. Lovely chap. Really, really lovely chap. It very understated, and I think I know he's always listened to to the podcast, and we've talked about a lot of the themes. I'm always really encouraged when I see um, the management of events who are clearly on, they've got their finger on the pulse. He's thinking about it. He, there is not an ounce of complacency about what the Dubai sevens are trying to do. I think he's, he, he was courteous enough to say, um, that the Dubai sevens and Hong Kong sevens, I think world rugby owe a huge debt of gratitude to both those events for keeping, uh, for shoring things up. And now for their new launch of a new series, hopefully we'll start to see real growth because they have led the way and they are listening to the kind of themes that we've been talking about and others about how you keep contemporizing, modernizing, and also commercializing what you've got. And particularly when you're an event that doesn't and can't rely on television revenue what are your other revenue streams what are you going to do to bring people in and i think they they have absolutely crushed it and i'm really sad i can't go this year but i think we've just uh, hopefully managed to get ourselves a a live gig for for next year at the dubai sevens and providing um 007 or 8 or whatever his name is um isn't sorting out some other sort of feud in another part of the world maybe he can join us as well that would be that would be a lot of fun, and, and you know this thing that's been this series that's been financed by Ability Sport Travel. Actually, as it goes along, makes me think a little bit more. Maybe there's not just one collective name for bucket list anymore. It's you know my theme. There's not one collective name for anything in sport anymore. Um, you know, I see what we do, what we do in the restaurant business. That you know, there is an element of um, experience vibe. You no know, coolness, just going to an event because it is the place to be. And then there's bucket lists that you have to go to because there is something very, very historical about them. And, and, and you know, maybe we shouldn't think about making both of those things join up in the middle. You know, maybe they are two completely different things. You know, if I think of the Crucible in Sheffield, where you went to this year, that's bucket list for me. I've never been. And I wouldn't need it to be having the DJ set, you know, uh, in between, because that would be a bucket list in itself. However, you know, we saw in Las Vegas with the Formula One and, and, and some of the things that Matt's doing there, then you do have to work slightly differently for a different audience 
uh, and you know Dubai in every way well outside of sport as well as a different audience. And I am fascinated about how Dubai and the rivalries with Qatar and Saudi play out. I think that is one of the, the themes that isn't talked about a lot. Dubai, I know I'm not an expert in the Arab world, but I think there's a whole lot of respect between them about how they operate with each other and what they say to each other and what they don't say. And I think Dubai and all of this, you know, like last year and a half of Saudi being there and there and everywhere, Dubai's been respectfully saying not very much and just getting on with it. And I think Matt's a great example of that. Absolutely. And I think what he's talked about the region, it's the region becoming this power hub for so much is is where this is all a lot of this is heading. But I, I also agree with you what you said, there are certain events, which are the purest form, which is you go to the crucible, it's a snooker crowd, you're watching something that is entirely and all about snooker. But rather like my experience at the Melbourne Cup that I, I shared with with you guys yeah. last week, this is a very old event. It's over 150 years old. It's all about tradition and heritage but with an Aussie twist which means they've got live music there are a lot of people who will not see a horse for a week but will have a most brilliant time and, and having that flexibility and knowing who you are and knowing your market and it comes back right back That's to right. what we're saying which is if you know your audience and if you know the audience you want and if you know the audience you want and you need to know about them if you've done that diligence you've got half a chance of solving the riddle it's when you don't that you have none. Yeah, yeah. Well said, Captain. Uh, so let's bring this to a close. Thanks again to Infinity Sports Travel. Uh, this is a lovely series that I'm really enjoying. Um, thanks to everybody listening. Thank you to James Gibb, our producer. And uh, obviously t- today, uh, Matt, uh, who was fantastic. And uh, Giles, uh, for anybody that doesn't already follow us, you can follow us at our um entertained are on twitter and you can follow yourself on uh, at giles morgan 71 i'm always happy to hear from people and i'm also really happy i was having a look we have lovely reviews um from people keep them coming because uh, it's just a really useful place for us it's a great way to get feedback of what people want so don't be shy listeners tell us what you think well, well so you're saying that blocking immediately anybody that's got can it's got a criticism of us is not a good plan. No, yeah, they're obviously not welcome. <laughs> right, okay, I'll have to stop doing that. And, and you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, that was great fun. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.